How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. The flower fades and the grass withers, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity we have to gather together in a free nation to study your word. We thank you for the way you continue to protect, watch over this nation. We pray that you would continue to protect our borders, that you would continue to foil the plots of those who would uh, terrorize us. We pray that you would continue to uh, strengthen our president, strengthen those who are in charge of these security forces. We pray that you would uh, strengthen those in charge of homeland security, give them wisdom, give them a skill at organization. Father, we pray for our intelligence organizations, that you would uh, give them special skill to root out and to discover these plots against us. We pray for our military serving overseas. We pray that you would watch over them, especially those men from this congregation. Oh, Father, as we study your word, we pray that you'd help us to understand the things that we study and to gain a greater insight into what it means to exchange the human viewpoint in our souls for divine viewpoint. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Romans 12.2 says that we are to not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, by the renovation of our thinking. Now, we're not to be conformed to the world. The term there for world is the Greek word cosmos, which has to do with an orderly arrangement of something. In this context, it has to do with the orderly arrangement of thought. And every culture, whether it's a primitive Stone Age culture in Irian Jaya, whether it's a, uh, an Asian culture, a, whether it is a, an inner urban culture in the United States, whether we're talking in a little broader sense of a Western culture versus an Islamic culture versus a, uh, <clears throat> Jewish culture, whatever the culture is, every culture in every nation has certain characteristics. These characteristics are more often than not built on an assumption that God does not exist. They, they come out of the uh, human viewpoint of that day and that era. So wherever you are in life, whatever you're doing in life, as a believer, you need to be aware of the fact that you have been, in a sense, brainwashed, inculcated with the cosmic thinking of your nation, your culture, your background, and you need to be in the process of evaluating, examining all of this thinking that we have in our soul that we pick up from the culture around us in order to remove from our soul the thinking that is human viewpoint and replace it with divine viewpoint. The best illustration I can give you is that of a missionary. If a missionary is going, if you were to be a missionary and you were going to go from here to some place in Africa, some place in Asia, then what you would have to do before, as you got into the process of, of transporting yourself into another culture, you would take time to study that culture, study their history, study their background, study the value systems, the norms and standards of that culture, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, everything from, from table matters, manners and personal courtesy to 
religious beliefs that have dominated that particular culture and how those religious beliefs work themselves out in terms of the work ethic, in terms of social structure, in terms of uh, <coughs> marriage relationships, male-female relationships. Everything within that culture flows from those ultimate religious beliefs. And then it's real easy to see that in that kind of a context, you have to be able to craft your teaching of the Word of God so that it exposes the one-to-one confrontation between divine viewpoint and human viewpoint. We see many examples of that in the New Testament as Paul is teaching uh, in some cases, congregations that are primarily Jewish but still have a large Gentile population. Other congregations were primarily Gentile coming out of different pagan pagan backgrounds. There's always sort of a polemical edge to many things that Paul is writing in his epistles because he is juxtaposing the divine viewpoint teaching with human viewpoint teaching. Now, in the last several years, we've taken some time to focus on specific human viewpoint teachings that dominate our culture, one of which that we spent about three or four lessons on in the Judges series was on psychology and why psychology with its roots in Freud, uh, Jung, Maslow, many others, has its roots in autonomous human thinking, not in biblical thinking, and there is a head-to-head confrontation between psychological concepts and psychological concepts and, and Christianity. We've looked at other aspects. We've looked at the New Age movement. We've looked at postmodernism. It's important to recognize that historically many of these isms that came along, as well as Marxism and uh, <clears throat> socialism that gained their r- real thrust and real uh, emphasis in the, begin- in the middle of the 19th century, that these all started at roughly the same time. You go back to the 1830s, 1840s, 1850s, and you will find that the same core group of thinkers were influential in the founding of all of these basic thought systems. People like Augusta Comte, uh, Freud, Marx, Darwin, all were influential, and they read each other, and they they cross-pollinated ideas. And yet the history of the 20th century is really the history of the impact of those mid-19th century ideas on Western civilization as Western civilization drifted further and further away from the Reformation roots that were laid down in the uh, 16th century. Now, one of these areas that we haven't taken time to take out and specifically expose is the area of creation and evolution. Now, we have just finished a detailed exegesis of the first chapter, the first section of Genesis, from Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3, forms the first section of Genesis, and in that we have looked at exactly what the Bible teaches about origins and how the creation week, the six-day week of restoration, is structured. So tonight and the next two Wednesday nights, what I want to do is step back from that a little bit, now that we have our biblical framework in place, and I want to look at the at evolution as it is taught and do a comparison and contrast with what the Bible teaches, what evolution teaches, because evolutionary thought undergirds so much of what it dominates in our society today. Most psychological thinking 
and concepts of who and what man is is influenced by evolutionary thought. In fact, you can even go out and find a lot of so-called Christian psychologists, and what they have done is they have tried to merge uh, psychology with Christianity and tried to go over into the realm of psychology and pick up certain elements that they think are neutral. They sound good, but they forget because most of these people have never been trained in the history of ideas and the history of philosophy, they don't realize that these these uh, ideas they're picking up are like the fruit at the end of various branches on a tree, and they never take the time to see that there is an integral relationship between the fruit at the end of the branch and the roots that are deep in the soil of atheism and uh, evolution and Darwinism. So we have to look at this. If you want to... Th- Break it down again. Psychology, sociology, uh, Marxism, socialism, and, and evolution, Darwinism, all have their roots in that same framework of thought that occurs in, in the roughly 1800 to 1850 uh, period of time, even though uh, Dar- uh, Darwin doesn't publish Origin of Species till 1858. It is still within that period of time that all of this thought comes together and cross-pollinates. So let's look at what evolution is. First of all, we always need to start with a good definition of evolution. Evolution is the idea, that when I'm speaking of evolution the next few weeks, evolution is the idea that it took billions of years for the present universe to develop the way it is and that it took millions of years for organic molecules to develop, and then millions of more years for those simple organic molecules to transform slowly and gradually from simple amoebas and protozoa to the complexity of the modern human being. That is the idea of evolution. That You have two things we're going to look at. One relates to the development of the universe, which took billions of years Today in the literature, it's anything from about 3.7 to 4.7 billion years. You can't even comprehend a billion. That's such a big number. But it's it's anywhere from 4 billion years to 20 billion years, depending on who you read and how much time they think they need. And then when it comes to the Earth, the Earth just happened by pure random processes. And in those random processes, there was this mix of chemicals, sort of this primordial chemical stew cooking on the stove. And something happened, an electrical discharge, or they're not really sure what. They have no idea. It's all guesswork. You go to a museum, you see pictures, you see uh, murals on the wall, you see all sorts of claims made by various various scientists, but in their literature they will admit they do not have a clue how it happened. And, and there was one particular event that happened that from non-living matter, non-living chemicals, suddenly it produced a living cell just by pure random chance. And that has to be their view. They have to hold on to that with all of their might to protect their whole theory. But as we will see, that is something that is virtually impossible. Now, if you have ever tried to talk to anybody about evolution, and you're a Christian, you will often hear people say, well, you believe in evolution, don't you? Evolution just means change. I mean, everybody believes in change. You've got to be some kind of a, a... mental midget to not believe in change. But that is that is really a debater's technique to try to avoid the whole issue. 
there are two types of evolution, actually. There's what we would call microevolution and macroevolution. Microevolution and macroevolution. Now, microevolution is what we would call change, small DNA changes or uh, genetic changes within a species or kind. This is like you, you have dogs and you can take various dogs and breed them together and eventually develop a new, uh, a new breed of dog. That, it's still a dog. It's, it hasn't become a cat. It hasn't become a rat. It hasn't become a bird. It's still a dog. Those are changes. You can take horses and you can breed various kinds of horses together and develop a new horse breed. You can make them larger to develop a plow horse, race horse, um, different types of horses, but they're still a horse. When everything is said and done, it's still a horse. This is microevolution. Now, Macroevolution is the idea that there is slow change and tra- and slow change and transformation from one species to another. This is the whole idea of amoeba demand from one species to another. This is what we're talking about is macroevolution, the idea that there's change and development across the boundaries where fish eventually crawl out of the water and become amphibious, and they develop lungs instead of gills, and then eventually they become reptiles. Eventually those reptiles become mammals, and eventually the mammals develop into the highest order of of, of animal, which is man. So that shows that there is one chain of being, and this is a critical idea in the whole history of evolution, the idea of a chain of being that all life forms are all part of the same connected chain of life goes back to uh, the distant myths of of uh, history because that's part and parcel of almost every ancient uh, pagan religious belief is this this idea of a chain of being and that undergirds so much of psychology today and some of these other ideas uh, <clears throat> that come along. Now, one of the classic illustrations that is given in most textbooks, you probably remember this from your high school biology textbook or college class, is the idea of peppered moths in England. That in England you had uh, peppered moths. They were a white moth with uh, black peppering on them. And they would uh, be camouflaged on, on a beech tree. Uh, and then uh, in the middle 19th century, as you had the development of uh, industry, heavy industry, and the use of coal fuels and the heavy pollution that came about and all of the soot that that fell out of the atmosphere, what would happen is that soot would color the tree, get on the trees, and all of a sudden these white moths would become exposed. And now the birds that would eat those peppered moths would, would see them. They wouldn't be camouflaged against that against that background. And so as as time went on, that the number of white moths that originally outnumbered, vastly outnumbered the number of black moths. There were black moths with white peppering, but they were in the minority. And then the vast majority, 95% of the moths were, were white with, with black specks. Well, as a result of this, as a result of the pollution and the soot from the, uh, from the smokestacks, 
the white moths became visible, and so they were eaten. Well, after 50 or 60 years, suddenly there was a shift in the moth population, and now 95% of the moths were black with white spots, and the, the white moths were disappearing. And so that is given as an example in the textbook of evolution, survival of the fittest, and how they adapt to the changing conditions. And so there's been a change now. There's been this, this development from the white moth to the black moth. Only trouble is it's still a moth. See, what nobody tells you is it's a, it's a moth. It's gone from, you had black moths before, now you had, and, but they were in the minority. What changed was the environment, and so one group of moths died out, and so the other group became genetically more dominant, but it's still a moth. It's still part of the same species. Nothing changed from one species into another species. So the basic theory of evolution can be boiled down to the idea that in the beginning, there was nothing, and there was no one, and as a result of nothing plus no one, everything else came into existence, and that's the basic basic mathematical formula, and if you boil it down like that, you realize that really doesn't make uh, a whole lot of sense. Moving right along, nothing plus no one equals everything, or time plus chance, if you give something enough time plus chance, you're going to develop order, intelligence, and complexity. Time plus chance equals order, intelligence, and complexity. So this is the root of all evolutionary thought, is time plus the element of chance. Anything can happen. The idea is that given enough time, anything can happen. But that's not true. Given enough time, I will never win the lottery. You know, If you go out and buy a lottery ticket, the chances of your winning on a lottery ticket may be 1 in 20 million. If you buy two lottery tickets, your chances are not 2 in 20 million. Your chances for each lottery ticket are still 1 in 20 million. Most people don't understand probability. Now, because the odds are low enough, somebody is going to win that lottery ticket. But the odds of you or me winning that lottery ticket are, are, are less than the odds of getting hit by lightning. You've got a greater chance of being hit by lightning than winning the lottery. But the idea undergirding evolution is that if you give enough time, that anything, anything can happen. And that's the element of chance. And if you take time and chance, then what the result will be is order, intelligence, and complexity. So if you take a, if you take a typewriter and you put that typewriter in a cage with a monkey, given an, the idea is that given enough time, eventually he will he will just randomly peck out the words in the beginning God created. But see that will never happen. The odds are impossible. But that's the that's the root of the whole thought of evolution, as it's ultimately it's just wishful thinking. So there is a Direct conflict between the whole theory of evolution and what the Bible teaches. So I want to outline tonight and in the coming weeks some of the conflicts. First conflict is the conflict of presuppositions and biases. The conflict of presuppositions and biases. We have to realize that everyone has some sort of presupposed starting point. Everyone has a bias. I freely admit my bias. I believe the Bible tells the absolute truth. And if we start there, we're going to be able to properly interpret all the data that we run into in our experience. But 
scientists seem to want people to think that they start from a position of pure objectivity. They're not going to be influenced by some religious text. Well, see, if a religious text happens to be what it claims to be, and that is the direct revelation of God who created everything, and he's an omniscient God who knows everything, and the scientist is not omniscient, then what's going to have more accuracy? If the text of Scripture is what it claims to be, its revelation of God is 100% accurate, and it is discarded as part of the evidence by a scientist, then that scientist is no longer uh, is, is not free from bias. He has a he has a presupposition or a bias at the very beginning that has excluded a large piece of the evidence. So therefore, he he predetermines his conclusion because he limits the evidence he is willing uh, to examine at the very beginning. When you admit that your starting point is an anti-supernatural empiricism or rationalism, then you have already determined from the very beginning before you started talking about any evidence that God does not exist and that God cannot communicate and that any communication that claims to be from God is just something that is made up by man. See, that's their starting point. They have already predetermined the situation by their assumption. They have determined at the very beginning that God does not exist, and if he, even if he did, he could not communicate. Now, one question we need to ask somebody who says that they're they're really biased. I mean, they're really um, they're really not prejudiced. They're really objective, and that that if you want to, you prove God to me. I'm willing to listen to the evidence. What would constitute evidence for a person like that? What would constitute proof? Ask somebody. Ask ask an evolutionist. What do you take as proof that there would be that God exists? You see, the Bible claims in Romans 1, 19 to 20, that there is more than sufficient evidence that God exists. Open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verses, well, let's start at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because what may be known of God, see, that's a subjunctive mood, Verb, what might be known, that is the potential of all that could be known about God, is manifest in them. It's not, that's a, uh, an indicative mood verb, it, it's a mood of reality, it is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, they're not muddled. So if somebody goes out there and they says, you know, I don't see God, then it's, it, his evidence is clear, they're distorting the evidence, and that distortion comes from their own volition. They are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, verse 18. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So there's evidence, there's clear evidence every time you look at a molecule, every time you look at a flower, every time you look at at some remarkable creatures that are in the world today, it's evidence that there is a designer, that there is an intelligence behind that design. For example, let me give a broader illustration of this. Let's say you go down to one of these areas in South America where there are the various, um, uh, it seems like there's certain things that have been cut into the vegetation, and there are certain things that have been, been designed there, a certain pattern there. You look at that pattern, you say, well, somebody made that. I mean, that's just your automatic conclusion is you look at that, and you say, somebody cut that. There was some kind of, some person, some creature, somebody with intelligence cut that, because you don't have perfect circles in nature. If you're out hiking on a trail, if you're up in the mountains, in the Rockies, and you're hiking on a 
on a trail somewhere and you come down to a to a creek and there are three stones set in a straight line you see those three stones in a straight line and you know somebody did that I've spent hours and hours and hours backpacking and I have never yet seen three or four stones set in a perfectly straight line somebody had to bring order to that it didn't happen like that in nature nature does not uh, which operates in, on randomness uh, in many ways does not produce that kind of perfect order. You see that structure, you immediately conclude somebody did that. You walk down a trail and you see five or six stones in, a, in the form of a sh- uh, shape of an arrow. You know that there was somebody with intelligence who did that. It didn't just happen that way. There wasn't a flood, there wasn't a tornado that deposited those five or six stones in the shape of an arrow. So you see something and it provide sufficient evidence that there is a God and that there is an intelligent design. But man, because of sin and rejection of God and God consciousness, suppresses that truth and unrighteousness, and while looking at all of this evidence that God exists, just denies it. So you would ask someone like Isaac Asimov, what really would constitute proof? And what his answer would be is, well, I don't know. That's because he has more proof than he needs, but he's rejected that. He really doesn't know what would constitute proof. And if he doesn't know what would constitute proof, he would know if it was proved or not. You see, if you don't know what would prove the existence of God, then when you're faced with that proof, how do you know if it's you've been had the had the existence of God proved or not? So if God exists, what would a rationalist or empiricist accept as constituting proof? If you don't know what would prove the conclusion, then you won't know, you wouldn't know the, you wouldn't know it if you saw it, if the proof was right in front of you, because you have already predetermined the conclusion. So the first conflict that we have is a conflict of presuppositions, presuppositions and biases. In evolution, the presupposition is anti-supernatural. There is no God who is involved in the creation. You can't know that. And for the believer, we believe in the supernatural. We believe in the existence of God and that God can communicate and can, can communicate clearly to his creatures. Now this leads to the next basic conflict between the uh, creationist and the evolutionist between the biblical view of creation and the secular view of evolution and that is that evolution is a religion see the claim of the evolutionist is that well we are scientists we're not going to take into account religion creation is just a religious belief the problem is that evolution is also a religion. In fact, evolution is as much a religion as Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, or any other religious system. It is a system of faith. For example, how do we know how old the rocks are? If you go out and you're a geologist and you examine the rocks, how old do you know how how do you know how old the rocks are? Well, there's various other forms of dating that we will get into by the third uh, lesson in this series. But one way they date the rocks is by the fossils that are in them. You date the rocks by the fossils. Well, how old are the fossils? Well, the fossils are dated by the kind of rock they're found in. 
So it's a circular argument. How do you know how old the rock is? By the fossil that's in it. How old do you know how, how, how do you know how old the fossil is? By the age of the rock that it's found in. So it's a circular argument. See, fossils don't come along with a little tag on them that says, that, that gives their birth certificate and provides their age. You date it through some other means. The scientists weren't there. Nobody was there when those fossils were created. God was there, and God has informed us what happened. See, the scientists are all finite. They have limited knowledge. They have a limited framework. And in order to be able to understand all these things, we need the information from someone who was there and someone who is omniscient. And we have an omniscient God who has revealed these things to us in his word. Now, the fact of evolution is the backbone of biology. Let me say that again. The fact of evolution is the backbone of modern biology. Modern biologists believe that evolution is not simply a theory. It is a fact. There are many of them that continuously say that that evolution is basically accepted as a fact in biology. This puts biology in the peculiar position of being a science founded on an unproved theory. Evolution is not proved at all. So therefore, we must ask the question, is this a science or a faith? If it's not proved, is it science or is it faith? Belief, actually this is a quote from Dr. Harrison Matthews, who is an evolutionist, and he's the writer of the introduction to Darwin's book, The Origin of the Species. Now, the full title of Origin of the Species, as it was originally published, is Origin of the Species by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. Talk about a racist title. The Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. And almost all of the... uh, founding fathers of evolution, Darwin, Huxley, and many of the others, all believed that the white races were superior to all of the other races, and all the uh, colored races uh, were actually uh, degenerations in the development of the human race, and that they would eventually die off, and the white races would be supreme. That has pretty much been expunged from modern evolution because they find it embarrassing. You see, it was that idea that gave root to what was called social Darwinism, which was the foundation of the whole Nazi theory. And and Hitler was an evolutionist, and he believed that in the process of evolution, the Aryan races were the superior races. And the Nazi beliefs were all founded upon social Darwinism, and they find that an embarrassment, so you won't find it uh, talked about much anymore. But anyway, Harrison Matthews, who's an evolutionist, writes the following. The fact of evolution... Uh, is the backbone of biology, and biology is thus in the peculiar position of being a science founded on an unproven theory. Is it then a science or a faith? Belief in the theory of evolution is thus exactly parallel to belief in special creation. Now, this is the words of an evolutionist. Belief in the theory of evolution is thus exactly parallel to belief in special creation. Both are concepts which believers know to be true, but neither up to the present has been capable of proof. Notice he admits that neither creation nor evolution is capable of proof. You can't prove it. It, To prove it, you have to be able to repeat it. You have to demonstrate it in the laboratory. You have to be able to identify what the mechanics were, and none of that is possible in either system. Therefore, they are both religious statements. Furthermore, uh, Dr. T. N. T- Tamizian, 
who served on the Atomic Energy Commission, stated in an interview uh, back in 1959 that scientists who go about teaching that evolution is a fact of life are great con men, and the story they are telling may be the greatest hoax ever. In explaining evolution, we do not have one iota of fact. Now, this is some of the best-kept uh, secrets in modern education because, as you well know, there continues to be fights uh, between creationists and evolutionists about getting a creationist model introduced into the classroom. Now, a creationist model in the classroom does not necessarily mean they even talk about God, but just get providing evidence that evolution does not adequately answer the problems and that, therefore, there must be some form of intelligent designer or creator that uh, created all forms of life. So, if evolution is not science and a religion, what is the evolutionary faith based on? Well, it's impossible for science to test or validate any of the assumptions on which evolution is based. No experiments can test it. They can't reproduce it in the laboratory. And see, the basis of scientific methodology is that you're able to reproduce uh, reproduce the the experiments in the laboratory in order to demonstrate the truth of the theory, and that can't take place. Evolution is based on seven assumptions, according to evolutionist G.A. Kirkut. Evolution is based on seven assumptions that are the foundation of everything in evolution. Now, this is from Dr. G.A. Kirkut, and he outlines the following seven assumptions. The first assumption on which evolution is based, is that non-living things gave rise to living material. This is also known as spontaneous generation. That non-living thing gave, gives rise, <coughs> non-living things gave rise to living material. The second assumption is that spontaneous generation occurred only once. Now, earlier evolutionists would say spontaneous generation occurred several times. That's why you get different races. They were actually split. You had, you had a Jewish race, was, had some other evolutionary beginning than white races. They had a different evolutionary beginning than black races. So they're not, there wasn't a unity of the human race. And that, of course, became quite a foundation for the anti-Semitism of Nazism. But the view is that the, that spontaneous generation only occurred one time. That, that is, that only once did one molecule of inorganic matter, of non-living chemicals, get transferred or transformed into living material. And then from that one event, that one single event, when one molecule developed by chance from non-living material, it happened at the right time and it preser- was preserved long enough to replicate itself. Now we'll get into that in a, in a minute. But the, the assumption here is that it occurred only once, but that cell had to last long enough to replicate itself and inside that cell there had to be the capacity for reproduction. That involves an incredible amount of information inside of a cell for a cell to be able to replicate itself. So we're not talking about something that is, that is simple. See, in Darwin's day, he thought they thought a cell was very, very simple. A single cell creature is very, very simple. There's not that much information there. And today, because of what we've learned in, in uh, microbiology, we know that a cell is incredibly complex. 
and that it takes a tremendous amount of information in order for that uh, cell to even be in existence. Third assumption is that viruses, bacteria, plants, and animals are all related. Fourth, the fourth assumption that he outlines is that protozoa, that is single-celled life forms, gave rise to metazoa, multiple-celled life forms. Fifth, the fifth assumption Kirkcutt outlines is that various invertebrate phyla are interrelated. That is, there is a, that one had developed into the other. So there's an interrelationship between the, the invertebrate phyla. The sixth assumption is that the invertebrates gave rise to the vertebrates. And then the seventh assumption is that within the vertebrates, the fish gave rise to amphibia, the amphibia to reptiles, the reptiles to birds and mammals. Now, these assumptions Dr. Kirkcutt lists virtually define everything in evolutionary teaching. And then he states that they're all assumptions and not one of them is based on any factual, demonstrable, experimental, testable, or reproducible evidence. The entire theory is nothing more than an assumption. There is not one bit of evidence to prove it. Now, one thing that I want to look at as we critique this is to go back and look at that first first assumption that non-living things gave rise to living material through spontaneous generation. There was a uh, some sort of electronic action on on a some chemical stew that produced a uh, life form, uh, uh, one single-celled of, of organic life. Now, over the years, a number of mathematicians have sought to determine the mathematical probability of evolution and the mathematical probability of spontaneous generation. Particularly, they have looked at the mathematical probability that all of the necessary factors could come together in just the right way at the right time that non-living chemicals would, in one purely random act, generate a living cell, and that this cell then survived in a hostile environment long enough to reproduce itself. Now, where did all of this come from, and how could this take place? Well, I'm not going to go into all the complexities of figuring out the the probability formulas, but if all of the universe as we know it, assuming that the universe is of a certain size, if all the universe were crammed with electron particles, now we all know how small an electron is, it's a subatomic particle, and there, the universe is not currently filled with electron particles, most of space is a vacuum. But if all of the universe were crammed with electron, electron particles, then the maximum number of particles that could fill the universe would be 10 to the 130th power. Now, 10 to the 130th power is 10 followed by 130 zeros. Okay, 10 to the 130th power. If each particle, if each one of those electron particles in that universe could perform a 100 billion billion events, that would be 10 to the 120th power, could perform 100 billion billion events each second. Okay, If each of those particles could perform 100 billion billion events each second and then allow for 10 to the 20th 
allow for 10 to the 20th uh, seconds of cosmic history. That would be 3,000 billion years. See, current guesses are that the Earth is only uh, about maybe 20 to 30 billion years at the most, but we're going to say 3,000 billion years. So 10 to the 20th seconds would would it cover 3,000 billion years. Remember, time plus chance equals organization. Then what you have is 10 to the 100 or 10 to the 270th power event. Excuse me. 10 to the yeah, 10 to the 270th power events possible. That's 10 followed by 270 zeros. Now, to get a series of as few as 1,500 events to take place in the right sequence. Now, remember, you have a single cell. You have a single cell, and in that single cell, you have um, you have um, let's start with amino acids and proteins. You have a cell wall, and you have some sort of reproductive system. Each of this involves thousands of activities, thousands of of events. So we're going to assume that we only have 1,500 events. That's an extremely conservative guess. In a cell, you would have thousands of events. So if, to, if you have a series of as few as 1,500 places, take 1,500 events taking place in the right sequence, and those 1,500 events all have to take place in the right sequence and under the right circumstances, the mathematical probability that you would produce a living cell is 10 to the 450th power. 10 to the 450th power, and this is what that looks like. One chance in ten, followed by 450 zeros. Now, that's a number that's beyond the comprehension of, of, of any of us. I mean, remember, you only have uh, ten followed by nine zeros to have ten billion. This is ten followed by 450, ten followed by 450 zeros. That is, that's impossible. That it will, that that event would ever take place. That's just for spontaneous generation of that one single cell necessary to start organic life. We're not talking about what would be involved in producing an eye. See, an eye is one of the greatest problems that evolutionists have because in the development of any part of the eye, it would be, until it was a fully functional eye, it would be considered some sort of, of negative development. I mean, what good is, is this extra thing if it doesn't work, it would be a hindrance to the to the creature. So until you have the fully developed eye, no part of it is would be considered valuable or functional in the development of the creature. So the basic idea in, in, in um, Darwinism was the idea of survival of the fittest and, and adaptations and, and mutations uh, that gradu- gradually accumulated over time. The problem with Darwinism is, as it explains and uh, emphasizes uh the uh, survival of the fittest is it never explains the arrival of the fittest. How did it get there in the first place? And as one evolutionist pointed out, one of the major problems in Darwin's book, Origin of the Species, is he never explains the origin of the species. 
See, survival of the fittest only shows why certain species survive and some don't. It doesn't explain how they got there in the first place. And yet anytime you're in a biology classroom, somebody's teaching on evolution, they're going to talk about survival of the fittest as if this is some kind of a brilliant uh, demonstration of the truth of evolution. But it doesn't prove uh, anything. In fact, mathematicians, there have been various other mathematicians who have worked on this theory, uh, worked on these probability figures over the years, and most of them come up with even uh, a greater improbability. They, this is one of the most conservative uh, estimates that was done, and it was done by a, an information scientist back in the early 60s. And since then, there have been numerous other attempts by uh, statisticians and information scientists to pr- prove the the uh, po- uh, probability of evolution, and it usually becomes uh, less and less probable. So it is mathematically impossible. It's also biologically impossible. But so that leads us to the theories of the ultimate origins of the universe. And there are two basic theories: the Big Bang theory, which is the predominant theory, and the steady state theory. And I'm just going to talk about the Big Bang theory. The Big Bang view is the belief that the universe and all it contains is the result of matter so dense that the matter itself was invisible, suddenly exploding in a super explosion that eventually resulted in the present orderly composition of the universe. So what you have is somewhere out there in the vacuum of space, which really doesn't even exist, is you have some matter, a little point of matter, that is so dense that the matter itself is invisible. You can't see it. Suddenly, that explodes in a super explosion going out in all direction, and that explosion eventually results in the present orderly composition of the universe. Just the very notion seems to be absurd. Uh, in a book called The New Story of Science, Robert Agros and George uh, Stanchu write that the universe began as a particle that was infinitely dense. How can it be infinitely dense? Uh, infinitely dense and occupied no space. How could it occupy no space and even be in existence? Now, this event is said to have taken place between 5 and 20 billion years ago. So, first of all, the Big Bang Theory assumes that matter and energy are eternal. Matter had to be eternally present before the Big Bang, or there would have been nothing to explode. So, matter has to be eternally present in this infinitesimally small and invisible piece of matter. Therefore, what we learn from this is everyone believes in something eternal. Either they believe in something that is eternal in the form of impersonal matter energy, or they believe in an impersonal force. This is a faith statement. It is faith. It's not uh, not science. Second, the Big Bang theory attempts to explain only the ordering and the organization of matter and energy. It doesn't seek to explain the origin of matter and energy, just how it is organized. Now, The basic problem is that if matter and energy are eternal, which the theory demands, then matter and energy would, by the time of the Big Bang, have reached a state of equilibrium. 
that means it would no longer be in some sort of a volatile uh, situation that could explode. If it had been there forever and it was always in a state of uh, some sort of, uh, of agitation where there was uh, kinetic energy there, then there would, by the time of the Big Bang, if it had been there for an infinite time, it would be in a state of in. Uh, equilibrium and would be non-reactive. This is based on two laws of science that are violated by the whole, or two laws of physics that are violated by um, the theory of evolution. The first, and these two laws are referred to as the two laws of thermodynamics. And in the first law of thermodynamics, we have the law that matter and energy are neither created, are not created or destroyed. This means that if there's no matter that's created or destroyed, then you have a finite amount of matter, X. There's a finite, it's not being added to, it's not decreasing. You start off with an X amount of matter. Now remember, according to their theory, matter is eternal. Now, the second law of thermodynamics says that all matter or energy is is moving from a state of or is moving to a state of entropy. And entropy means that it's in a non-usable state. It's still energy, but it's it is in a non-usable state. It is in a state of therefore a state of decline, moving from order to disorder. Now, if matter and energy are eternal, and you start off with a finite amount of matter and energy, and all matter and energy is moving from a, from a state of order to disorder, then an eternity ago, we ran out of usable energy and usable matter. Because, you see, you're not starting with an infinite amount of energy and matter. You're starting with a finite amount. And it's always moving from a state of order to disorder, moving to a state of entropy, so that an eternity ago it reached a state of pure pure entropy where there's no more usable energy or matter. And so that is a internal conflict between the uh, theory of evolution and the basic laws of thermodynamics. But in terms of the Big Bang, it also indicates that by the time of of the Big Bang event, you would have reached a state of pure equilibrium, and then there would have nothing been nothing to go boom, and nothing to cause it to go boom. So that necessitates that there ha- would have to be some sort of external principle or force, which is never discussed, that there must be some external principle or force on that matter in order to cause it to go boom. That, of course, is unacceptable because it brings you face to face with the idea of God. So the conflict here is that the Bible teaches that matter and energy are finite and created, as does the first law of thermodynamics, and the biblical data fits scientific laws more consistently than the theory of evolution. Furthermore, you have another conflict with in evolution and creation, and that is that in evolution they can't explain what holds the solar system together, what holds the universe together. Because gravity is a function of mass, but there's not enough mass in the solar system, not enough mass in the galaxy, not enough mass in the universe to hold it together. There is a missing mass problem. 
Of course, Colossians 1, 16 and 17 tells us that everything is held together by the Lord Jesus Christ. That solves the missing mass problem. Now, another conflict that we have is that according to the Bible, Jesus Christ created mankind in the image and likeness of God, but according to evolution, man developed over millions of years through billions of evolutionary mistakes and the death of billions of creatures. So on the one hand, you have God creating man instantly, and on the other hand, you have millions of years of evolutionary mistakes, uh, sidetracks, and the death of billions of creatures. According to evolution, man is fundamentally no different from any other animal, micro, bacteria, or plant. All are part of that same chain of being. That's why in terms of the modern ecological movement, it's so so such a terrible evil to go out and chop down trees in the rainforest. It's because we're all part of that same chain of being. Man is part of that chain of being. He can't go in and you, he's not over nature as the Bible says. Furthermore, if you, if you try to take any form of compromise with evolution, any form of accommodationist view such as theistic evolution, the day-age theory, or progressive evolution, then you have a God who must be incredibly violent as well as inept, who required millions of years of ferocious animals and death. The whole idea of survival of the fittest is built on death. Something has to survive. That means something doesn't survive. The basic mechanism of evolution is death, destruction, violence. So if you if you accommodate to evolution at all, you basically have a God who has built everything through the mechanism of death. To finally be able to produce something, he was proud enough to claim as his own image. Furthermore, if humans evolved from from apes and from other creatures, then Jesus Christ, who's born of the Virgin Mary, is would be genetically linked not just to mankind, but to all animals. And so then, again, this is against the statement of Mark 10.6, which says that God specifically created uh, Adam and the woman. Man was created fully mature with the appearance of age. When Adam was created, five minutes later, you came and walked up to Adam, you would think you were talking to a 25 or 30-year-old male. Five minutes after uh, Isha is created, you walk up and you talk to her, you think you're talking to a 25, 30-year-old female. It looked like she'd been there for not only that, but they would reach out and they would eat ripe fruit off of a tree that was only three days old. But it had the appearance of age. So everything was created and had an appearance of age, and that is not a deception. That's not a subterfuge. For example, in John chapter 2, we know that Jesus transformed the water into wine. Now, what does it take to make good wine? Well, one element of good wine is age. One ele- And yet Jesus created uh, it's the best wine that's ever been drunk in human history in a second. See, it had the appearance of age, even though it wasn't old. Think about the miracle when, G- when uh, Peter got angry, tried to protect the Lord, got out of line and chopped the ear off of the slave, the temple slave, in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane when they came to arrest Jesus. When Jesus took that, that ear and put it back on the temple slave, it healed instantly. It, that healing had the appearance of something that had taken a long time. Under normal conditions, it would take uh, weeks, if not months, for that to heal, and yet it healed instantly. It had the appearance of age. So that what happens is, under creation, you do have the appearance of age, and so that is going to affect any kind of dating uh, mechanism. 
The Bible is in complete and 100% conflict with what is taught in evolution. I have 25 points of conflict. And the point that I'm making here is that there are numerous attempts over the years to try to harmonize the Bible's account of creation with the myth of evolution. The worst of these, of course, is theistic evolution, which makes no attempt at all to accept anything that's in the Bible. The Bible, according to theistic evolution, is mostly myth. The only thing true is that God somehow is behind the process. Uh, More conservative accommodationist views are are called progressive creationism and the day-age view. In progressive creationism, you have the idea that God had one creative day the first day and he created, uh, he separated the light from the darkness and then a million years or a billion years goes by and God has another creative day and he does a few more things and another uh, million years goes by and then there's another creative day. So they're trying to take the text literally that these are 24-hour days. They're just separating them by, by millions or hundreds of millions of years. In the day-age view, the days aren't literal 24-hour days. Each day represents a hundreds of millions of years, a geologic age. And so you can try, they try to accommodate the Bible to that. But what I'm going to show you in this com- uh, comparison and contrast between the Bible and evolution is that the, if either the Bible is true or evolution is true, you can't force any kind of, of a synthesis between the two. There are so many radical differences. And this means that as a believer, you have only, you have two options. You either reject God and go for evolution, or you stick to a literal six-day creation as it is described in the Bible. Actually, as we've taught, a restoration. Uh, and the literal six-day restoration where God restored everything in a, in a six-day period. Well, let's look at the contrast. First of all, the Bible claims that God is the creator of all things in Genesis 1. Evolution claims that random events and chance processes plus no information or person accounts for the existence of all things. On the one hand, God, the Bible claims God created everything. On the other hand, it's a product of time plus chance plus nobody and no information equals everything. Second contrast, the Bible claims that the present world was uh, recreated in six literal 24-hour days. Six literal 24-hour days. Evolution, that the world evolved over eons of time, hundreds of millions of years. Third contrast, the Bible claims that creation is completed. The Whatever laws were in effect, whatever processes were in effect between day one and day six ceased at the end of the sixth day. But evolution claims that those processes and laws, those physical laws, biological laws, are still continuing the same today as forever. See, that's why we say you can't go back and really find out how God did it because God didn't establish the physical, the laws of physics, the laws of biology, except on specific days in creation. The creative processes follow different laws. Fourth, the Bible says that the ocean is created before the land. You have the formation of the ocean before the land, Genesis 1-2. Evolution says that land came before the oceans. So there's a direct conflict. The Bible says that there was an at, there's an atmosphere between the two hydrospheres, the upper waters separated from the lower waters. Evolution says that there is one contiguous atmosphere and hydrosphere in the early earth. 
Sixth, the Bible claims that the first life was on land. Genesis 1.11, the first life created was on land. Evolution claims that life began in the oceans. Seventh, the Bible claims that the first life was land plants. Evolution claims that the first life was, were marine organisms. Eighth, the Bible says that the earth was created before the sun and the stars, Genesis 1, 14 through 19. Evolution says that the sun and the stars came into being before the earth. Ninth, the Bible says that fruit trees were created before the fish. Evolution says that fish were created before fruit trees or came into being before fruit trees. The Bible says that all stars were made on the fourth day. Evolution says that stars evolved at various times down through the ages. Eleventh, the Bible says that birds and fish were created on day five. Evolution says that fish evolved hundreds of millions of years before birds appeared. Twelfth, the Bible says that birds... Uh, came in, were created before the crawling things, including insects. Genesis 1, 20 and 21, compared with 1, 24 and 25. But evolution says that insects came before birds. Thirteenth, the Bible says that whales were created before the reptiles. But evolution says that reptiles were created before whales. Fourteenth, the Bible says that birds were created before uh, reptiles. But evolution says that reptiles were created before birds. Fifteenth, the Bible says that man was created before there was rain, but evolution says there was rain before man came into being. Sixteenth, the Bible says that man came before woman, but evolution says that woman came before man, uh, based on genetics. Seventeenth, the Bible says that light was in existence before the stars and the sun were created, Genesis 1-3 compared with 1-16. But evolution says that the stars and the sun existed before there was any light. Eighteenth, the Bible says that plants were created before the sun, Genesis 1-11-12 and 16-18. Evolution says that the sun was in existence before there were any plants. 19. The Bible says that there was an abundance and variety of marine life all at once. Evolution says that marine life gradually developed from a primitive organic blob. 20. The Bible says that man's body was created from the chemicals of the soil, Genesis 2-7, but evolution claims that man evolved from ape-like ancestors. 21. The Bible claims that man exercised dominion over all organisms, but evolution says that most organisms were extinct before man ever existed. 22. In the Bible, man was originally a vegetarian, but in evolution, man is originally a meat-eater. Therefore, being a vegetarian is considered to be a higher thing. Um, 23. Bible in the Bible, uh, there are fixed and distinct kinds, Genesis 1, 11, 12, 21, 24, 25, and 1 Corinthians 15, 38 to 39. But in evolution, life forms are in a continual state of flux. 24th, in the Bible, man's sin is the cause of physical death in the universe, 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 22. 
and evolution, struggle and death were existent long before the evolution of man. And that leads to the final point, 25. In the Bible, suffering, death, and pain are viewed as abnormal. They are the result of sin that is not God's original and creative intent. But according to evolution, suffering, death, and pain, and therefore evil, are normal. See, in the Bible, suffering, death, pain, and evil are abnormal, and they are dealt with by the substitutionary atonement of Christ on the cross, and eventually all sin, suffering, death, pain, and evil are going to be removed, and there will be a perfect environment. But on evolution, sin, suffering, death, and evil are never removed because they are normal. They are the normal state of affairs. So only the Bible gives a proper explanation of the origin of evil, the origin of suffering, and gives us hope for the removal and the destruction of sin and suffering. Now next time I want to come back and I want to look at and critique the various chains of life, the different, uh, talk about the different uh, early forms of man and the, and the, and something about fossils and then in the final or the third class two weeks from tonight, what I want to look at is dating. I mean, how old are things, and how, what do they base all these ages on, and what are the what are the problems in the dating systems? So that gives you a little preview of coming attractions. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your Word this evening. We thank you that that uh, in your grace you have provided a perfect solution to sin, uh, death, misery and that is through the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things we study tonight, that we would be encouraged by them, that they would strengthen our faith in your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.